This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshi's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby. I'm Adam Bob. We hope you've been loving the interviews on our show over the past few weeks and we've been getting so much out of chatting with Australia's most interesting business founders and innovators. Haven't we just, Seth? Now, if this is your first time listening, First Act is the podcast where we dig into the origin stories of movers and shakers in business and life. We unpack the deepest, darkest secrets of successful people, the first jobs they had, the worst jobs they survived, and the light bulb moments that changed their lives. If you're loving what you hear so far, don't forget to pop a review, five stars of course, in Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to us. Now, today's guest is the very definition of a big hitter. She has nearly 2.8 million followers on LinkedIn who look to her for inspiration and insights from her life as one of Australia's most renowned entrepreneurs and business leaders. She founded Red Balloon in her home back in 2001 and has since grown the brand as part of the Big Red Group, Australia's largest collection of experienced marketplaces, including Experience Oz, Lime and Tonic and Adrenaline. Now, you know her as an investor on Shark Tank Australia and you have listened to her podcasts, read her blogs or her books and her name of course is Naomi Simpson. Welcome Naomi. Welcome Naomi. Oh it's so fab to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having, thanks for joining us I should say on our first act. We're going to start with what we call our first act icebreaker, a question to break the ice. Your icebreaker for today is if you could go on holiday with any three famous people, and they can be famous for anything at all, it can be famous in business or showbiz, whatever, who would those three people be and why would they be ideal travel companions? Well, I would definitely take a gourmet, somebody who really understands fabulous food. And I did see that Maggie Beer um, mm. has done quite a bit in the food and travel space. So I think she would be a fabulous companion. I would like to take somebody from the arts, so maybe Lizanne McGregor, because as we go through the galleries of life, she could tell me what's going on there. (laughs) I think that would be great. And then I think I would also like to take a historian. So I'm a bit short of names, but that's who I'd take. If they're travel buddies, I'm deeply curious about different, maybe I, um, um, maybe it should be somebody who is a um, sociologist or, and somebody who studies cultures. That would be interesting too. Yeah. I'm just feeling I've been a bit starved of lots of culture recently, even in Australia, you know, haven't been able to get to the galleries and get to um, exhibitions and all sorts. So uh, I think it's time a bit of culture for me. And so I think somebody who can help me navigate that would be wonderful. Oh, it sounds like a good holiday to me. Consider the ice broken. Let's get started (laughs) on your first act, Naomi. (laughs) Now, let's paint a bit of a picture. It's 2001. It's just a few months since the dot-com crash has single-handedly wiped out billions of dollars off the Aussie Stock Exchange. And it's taken out a bunch of ambitious and 
awesome web-based businesses. And then just as everybody's running for the hills and ditching the internet, here comes Naomi Simpson with the idea to start Red Balloon, an online business selling experience to customers. Now, what was going through your head? Why online and why then? And what did you see that everybody else didn't? Well, when I first um, was introduced to the idea, um, there were, the dot-com thing was absolutely going off. But, of course, from, from idea to execution and launch is many, many months. So the world changed in that time. Um, but once you've invested your family savings, you've kind of so far in, you know, just to, to write it off wouldn't, wouldn't make any sense. And the other thing is truly believed in it as a really great idea. I um, have been, or I, w- I am a marketer, historically always was. My first jobs out of university were in marketing for big brands. And when I left corporate life, when I have kids, I was a freelancer working with, uh, with clients, at designing fabulous marketing plans for them. And the one thing that I knew, especially in working with small businesses, is what they wanted was customers. And um, marketing can be really, really expensive. And also, it's a long haul to build a brand takes years. And it's not, you know, a matter of doing an ad. And in fact, when you think about those dot-com companies from way back then, you, you can hardly remember any of them. And they spent a fortune on billboards and so forth. So building brand takes a very long time. And I knew that small business just wanted customers. So then I began to wonder um, whether you could create a brand for an industry and deliver customers to them, but they only pay a clip of the ticket. And because, you know, marketers are expensive, marketing is expensive, and sometimes they do these fabulous marketing plans and they just do two or three things. So, yeah, that's why I thought it would be amazing to create a marketplace. I didn't know at the time that I was an absolute trailblazer. I was all about creating um, a brand, creating a community, uh, and so, yeah. That's that was a big reason. Plus, we have so much stuff on the planet, and there was also this consumer aspiration and this notion of people just being so material and so forth. And also, as you get older, when you have things, it's like the only thing you want to do is spend time with people. Giving that authority and trust to what is a cohort of small businesses and brand value was really what it was all about. So, given that the world was in flux, because by the time I launched, there was also September 11. Um, I was kind of too far in and, and I truly believed. And anybody I spoke to just said, oh, what a great idea. Or other people would say, oh, I thought of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard that one. Because there was a business in the UK called Red Letter Days, which was a catalogue and call centre business. But that would never work in Australia because our population is too small and our land too vast. So it needed to be online. So with Red Balloon, you wanted to steer, you know, well, I mean, I wouldn't say steer customers away from kind of like the thoughtless gifts to more priceless memories. It's not so much steering away. It's more kind of uh, illuminating, you know, that idea, that experience is what we take with us. And I think, I mean, we can we can all say from the past couple of years, like we're talking about those experiences you want to have in travel and, and all that kind of thing that you want to be able to make the most of in life. Where did you find the inspiration to tap into that element for your business? 
Well, that that, that did come from um, Red Letter Days in the UK and I did contact the founder at the time and say, well, maybe I could franchise, maybe I could open your concept in Australia and honestly, we may as well have been in the antipodes because there was no interest there at all and as it happens now, our, our business even just Red Balloon on its own but without being a part of the much bigger group is like 10 times larger. So, you know, I guess sometimes uh, the kernel of the idea comes from somewhere, but it's how you execute on that over and over again, be really focused in your strategy. Uh, and and even though, you know, for those first few months there was no sales, it was, oh, my God, it was agony, but you, you have to truly believe without being pig-headed. So you mentioned you bootstrapped the, the the brand. It was your family's money, your money that was on the line. You were running it out of your home in Balmain. You just said it took a few months for you to make your first sale. And I think I read it was a, a massage and you got like $9 commission out of it. Um, yeah, we're getting rich. Watch out. <laughs> so... How did you manage to keep your spirits up during that time? Was there a moment that you really went, why am I doing this? Did you question why you started it in the first place? Um, It never occurred to me to give up, which is the pig-headed piece, Hmm. because there's a difference between persistence and pig-headedness. And persistence is about um, having a clear goal in mind and then focusing on that, but listening and responding and adapting to change as 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 required. Um, and I suspect it's because, A, um, people were giving me great feedback. They weren't buying, but they were saying, what an amazing idea. And so I believed them. And the other thing is that I knew in my heart the challenge faced by the small businesses, the activity suppliers. And when I was talking with them, many of them were very sceptical. I mean, I remember the horse riding person out at Centennial Park in Sydney saying to me, oh, everybody comes along and wants to sell my stuff and they never deliver me even a customer. And and I was asking her to buy a computer for her bookings. And she was like, oh, there's no way and this, that and the other thing. But our business has always been process driven and and had the ability to scale and we couldn't be making manual bookings. That was never going to work. And years later, she said, you are the only one who ever did what she said she was going to do. And then, of course, she knows lots of other activity suppliers. And then they would say, actually, they're they're delivering as customers and then they would help us get other um, fabulous experience partners. So I never gave up because the conversations I was having. And I was also very early on speaking to corporates because I'd been a freelance marketer. And then one of my clients, Fuji Xerox, may as well name them, came to me and said, oh, we're looking at running an incentive program. And I said, well, I'm not doing the marketing consultancy anymore. I'm doing this. And they go, well, that would make a great incentive program. And they said, you know, if I did a great job, that they would be a testimonial, but we had to be national. And so because I effectively had customers telling me what they wanted. I went national. I got that gig. They ended up running it not for one quarter but five or six and it really gave me the momentum I needed because I had customers by then who were buying. So really it was that kind of testimonial word of mouth from doing great work. Great work begets great work. 
in a, in a sense. Would you say that that's a really crucial element to how you entice other brands to come on board and go, yeah, I, you can sell my stuff? Yeah, but also it's the integrity of, of how it works. And if we think about the business model, and let's say Fuji Xerox bought, I don't know, hundreds of vouchers, right, and they handed them to people and then those people came onto a website and it worked and they could book an experience and an activity and they went and they had fun. So if you think about business models, which is customer get customer, and that's how the brand grew because everybody who was given a red balloon voucher would then have to come to the website and use it. And so then they go, oh, this really works. And then they became customers. So, you know, it was pretty useless having a telephone, one telephone. You needed somebody else to have a telephone. Pretty useless having one fax machine. You needed other people to have fax machines. So it was customers driving the growth because they gave it to people. And that was always the premise of Red Balloon. It's a gifting business. But the other businesses that we have are providing customers to our activities partners, Adrenaline, Experience Oz and so forth, Lime and Tonic in the gourmet space. But but they are direct book, meaning I want to buy this for myself. I know when I want to go. I want to book in right now. And so that's a very different premise. But Red Balloon has always been about the gift. And obviously gifts you give to someone and then they know about the brand. How essential was those corporate clients to the business's growth? Like you mentioned Fuji and I imagine once Fuji signed up to you guys that other corporates were like, oh, actually this would be a great incentive for our staff. Um, And did that lead you to change your business model in any way apart from the fact that you said it made you go national with Fuji to begin with? Yeah, and actually not dissimilar was the story when Optus asked me in to do a length of service program for them because they said, oh, are you in New Zealand? And I said, not now, but we will be by Christmas. (laughs) This is way back in 2002. We only launched in 2001. I was to my word and we asked Australian businesses who they knew and then we went into different communities in New Zealand and then they would recommend a whole bunch of people And we won that work and, you know, they had, I don't know, let's say 10,000 staff and when they launched it, that means 10,000 people knew that Optus had chosen us to run their length of service program. So that is brand attribute right there. And so, therefore, it creates brand trust. And I was true to my word and I went back to them six months later and said, we've opened in New Zealand. They go, oh, we were just curious. We don't have any staff in New Zealand. We're an Australian-only business. I go, oh, right. Okay, <laughs> anyway, we've been in New Zealand ever since. It's been a lovely and it's a very successful business, but that's why we opened in New Zealand. And then American Express had done a whole bunch of research with their membership rewards and their platinum card holders and they were looking for experiences and they probably did a Google search and they came up with our name because there wasn't many people in that space. Uh, and then they gave us a double-page spread in their American Express catalogue and, again, that's a million people got to see that catalogue 
American Express chose us. That brand value and brand yeah. equity it's money you uh, that was buy. created through that gave an incredible trajectory. So it was about execution, making sure that when people did use their vouchers, it was a wonderful experience, the whole process, including the activity. But secondly, it was about who is already talking to the customers that we're speaking to and how do we get access to those audiences? And I wanted brand authority through association. You just mentioned making sure the customers have a wonderful experience. I'm wondering how were you able to guarantee that? What kind of vetting process was was there for the businesses and brands that you brought on? Um, well, it's extended now, but back in the day, there was probably about four or five points of um, service level agreement, quality assurance, but that's our nine-point secret source of what we know makes a great experience. And so every single one of our suppliers has to continually pass that um, bar. Um, And so that's the first thing is as we're bringing people on board, there is a process of um, vetting, assuring, making sure that they have all of those nine uh, qualifiers. And that is one of our secret sources to success. Um, but the second thing is that every single person who's been on a red balloon voucher and we are a red balloon activity, and we are only talking about red balloon, they get um, a how is it for you survey and we ask for customer feedback. That's evolved to being also about reviews. But back in the day, I just used to read every single one and you'd learn so much. And, you know, we, and then that would give us in, insight and we would publish those um, reviews or we would publish the um, customer feedback in our intranet so that when suppliers logged on, they could see it and they knew what was going on. And, and for instance, we knew one was getting continually bad feedback, but it was an amazing experience, but it was getting really bad feedback about the quality of the lunch. And <laughs> it was just like, this is really bad and blah, 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 even though the experience was amazing, but the Food quality was detracting. And so, you know, we picked up the phone and spoke to the operators and he goes, oh, thank God you told me. He said, because my brother-in-law does the food. And now <laughs> I say, you, we, uh, Red Balloon has said we need to get new catering. And so, you know, it's not always bad and people want to know how they can improve their business. And because we are so materially important to so many of these suppliers, they listen with big ears because it's a great way for them to learn and grow and enhance the quality of their activities. Gosh, if only all businesses kind of have that that same attitude to, you know, to feedback because feedback is so important. Um, I mean, there's obviously the other kinds of things where people do kind of write unfair reviews as well online too and that can really impact a business but I think like you said when it's coming through Red Balloon like they have a trusted provider that they're working with. Exactly and look we've delivered six or more million experiences now like we're serving experience every 30 seconds and things are going to go wrong things are not going to be perfect and it is at some point of course because we're dealing with external suppliers and partners and and you know they're really challenged right now on how they get the right team members and all of those things so all of those business issues go go on first thing it's how you deal with it how transparent you are but if we if i look at the in the scheme of things the people who badmouth us online, we're talking in the hundreds, not even the thousands. And so when you think of that in the context of having delivered 6 million or more experiences, you're kind of going, okay, 
That's very valid. And I think with anybody who reads reviews, it is often the people who are feeling frustrated and not heard are, are the ones that take uh, to social social media. And some people just aren't nice. You know, they just think it's great fun to have a crack at everybody. I know that having been in the public domain, there's people who just will say nasty things because that makes them feel good, uh, putting other people down. But every intention is there to make sure it is an incredible experience and we continue to listen deeply. But also when you're serving experience every 30 seconds, you have to listen in different ways. You can't run the business the same way as we did all those years ago. It's very different. We're just going to take a quick break and we'll be back to chat more with Naomi Simpson as we unpack her first act. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk about Shark Tank. When you were first approached to be on the show, what were your thoughts? Why why did you agree to be a part of it? And did you have any inkling how popular the show would end up being? I know it's it's amazing that even all these years later, it's eight years since we started that show, and I still get stopped in the street and people still tell me about their business ideas. But when I I'd never heard of it. I had no idea what it was. So when they asked me, um, it was an email that came in, and in some ways, I thought it was a bit of a prank. Or yeah. and I said to, <laughs> shark I said prank. to one of my, yeah, shark prank. And I said to one of my colleagues, "Has anybody ever heard of Shark Tank?" And she said, "You'd love it." And I said, "Do I get wet?" And she said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> Do I have to so, swim uh, with sharks? No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, "Okay, well, what is this?" And then I went to speak to. Um, I was just having lunch with somebody I absolutely admire, and. We were just chatting there and I said, oh, can you imagine they've asked me to be on a reality TV show? And she goes, oh, what is it? And I explained the premise and she said, well, I said, I'm not going to do it. She said, why not? And I said, well, you know, I've worked so hard on my reputation and business and nobody will take me seriously and this, that and the other thing. And she said, oh, my goodness, there is so many people out there who have no idea how to create a business, let alone a successful one, and you're going to be so stingy as to not be able to share your journey. Wow. I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, we all need somebody to challenge us and challenge us to greatness when we want to play small and to push us out of our comfort zone. Um, And the other thing is that I was very aware that as a female leader, if I don't stand up, then who's going to? And I knew that they were talking to Janine as well. And our show had gender balance from day one. Whereas in the US, they never had um, Laurie and Barbara on together until season five. And so gender was never an issue on our show. In fact, female-led businesses got more investment than male-led businesses. I kept a summary of all of that. And They'd never say, oh, this is a women's business. They wouldn't dare. And I also found all of the blokes on our panel unbelievably not just supportive, but they were only interested, as were we, in the business. It's a wonderful case study in what gender 
at in leadership does. It actually takes gender out of the conversation. We haven't got gender balance until we stop talking about it. And that's because we just are able to see um, ourselves in leadership. Since you mentioned gender balance, um, we were going to chat a bit more about Shark Tank, but I would like to touch on the women in business issue and the glass ceiling and your entrepreneurial journey as a woman in business. Have you felt like you've faced barriers? I don't know. I've got no idea. And I guess that's because I'm so focused on executing and so forth. Maybe, look, of course, way back in the day when I worked for ANSET and there was no female leadership anywhere except in um, the flight attendant department and in customer service, maybe. But I had great role models so I've always thought that I have a right to be there. Lindsay Catamol was one of them. She's uh, She founded Aspect Computing, which was an incredible systems integration business that she sold very successfully. Ultimately, I think it was acquired by Telstra after it was owned by CAS. And then, you know, my mother worked in computing her whole life. And so I had really strong um, role models and I just thought that's where I belong. So um, I... You know, if you look for it hard enough, it'll probably be there. But I, I chose a different path, and I know Janine's very much the same. Is the same. She's she's in some ways blind to it, um, and she will just lead in, into the conversation the same as I do. Do you think you're inherently optimistic then? One of my key strengths in um, the Gallup Strength Finder is positivity. That's great. <laughs> Getting back to Shark Tank. Um, During those times, you saw so many fantastic business opportunities coming up through the ranks of the people pitching to you. Were there any regrets? Were there any ones that got away that one of the others nabbed and you were like, ah, wish I'd I'd pitched to them hard enough so that I could capture them? Look, I I guess this is part of my positivity. I never look backwards Mm. Um, because we have to just choose and move on you know in the moment sometimes I was like oh why did you choose me and then afterwards and we all still chat and everything and they'd say oh no it was it wasn't a good business after all or whatever so (laughs) what we see on the tv is not necessarily what those businesses really were and I think only about not even a third of the deals actually happen because either they don't want the investment or when you start talking to them the business is is in no way similar to what you saw on air Um, so (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's a whole dance afterwards. But, you know, when they walk onto that set, we have no idea who they are. We've got no idea where they come from. We've got no idea what their product is, their industry or anything. So, And that's the premise of the program is how we react with our gut business uh, instinct. And um, sometimes we got it wrong and there's a few times that we got it very right. But you never look backwards. Well, no, that's not useful. That's not what a positive person does. <laughs> Looking backwards is only a recipe for, you know, regret and pain. But, you know, one of my favourite ones from Shark Tank is actually Inappropriate Gift Co. Um, Lorena yeah. Fegan, like that business has done Laurie. so well. Yeah. Oh, she's so good. Uh, I mean, I've laughed so many times and I've got a few of her products at home. Um, you know, mugs that have all kinds of... Um, you know, words that we're probably not going to repeat. No, we're not going to talk about not yeah, going to yeah. Yeah. But, oh, my gosh, that is that is just an amazing success story. What would um what would your top tips be, Naomi, for other entrepreneurs, you know, pitching to investors who want to find that kind of success? 
Look, um, one of the things that entrepreneurs often say is uh, the problem I'm solving for, but that's not really enough because you don't know if anybody will actually pay for it. So I would suggest that um, entrepreneurs or founders think about what is the job I'm being hired to do? And that is a very different question because is your product being hired to solve a problem, but what are people prepared to pay for it? And I think one of the frustrating things is when we saw people coming on set or even I still, you know, whatever, when I see people and they go, well, when I had a baby, I couldn't find any X, Y, and Z. And I was like, oh, my goodness, really? Um, Because you haven't told me anything about the size of the market, your authority to act in this market, apart from the fact that you're a parent. And so, you know, who are you to have authority in this marketplace? How big is this market? Why would people buy from you? Um, And what are they prepared to pay? And these are fundamental questions that I don't think often really come up. And, And also they've got to understand whoever they're pitching from is to speak in their language. So, you know, Steve is a comms guy. Uh, and um, but he does have three daughters, so he has his own personal experience about young people versus me, who's got all adult children. But I do remember when they were little. Um, <laughs> so I guess you you, you kind of need to make sure that you are you are sitting in the shoes of those potential investors and answering the sort of questions they're going to come up with. But a business is not a charity. It's just about commercial outcomes and I always like to say if you haven't got the means you can't change the world so people who come on and say it's a social enterprise I said yes but first of all you've got to make it an enterprise so you can do social good because otherwise you haven't got the money to. Mm. It's interesting that you say that because um, your book Live What You Love it seems to be all about that marrying of passion and purpose in both business and life so when did you first realise what your purpose was? I, it changes over time and I think it's, it's never a set and forget and I think it's a very important to observe your own energy. You know, at one point, way back in the day, it was just about getting Wheaties on the table and being able to afford education for my children and shoes and a house to live in and that is a very valid purpose is providing, um, you know, for your family. And then at some point, you may well have the luxury of being able to be able to contribute in a different way. And purpose is about what you give, not what you get. And often people misunderstand that. And and I listen deeply to people's purpose. And if it's all about them, 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 it just doesn't make any sense. So it's about how am I going to make the world a better place? That is what purpose is. This is my contribution to the planet. This is my contribution to humanity. This is a contribution to our society and in, if they're unable to get to the why is this important and the good for other people, then they're not at their purpose yet. And it's okay to not be able to find your purpose but just stay curious and observe your energy. And, and the energy will come from others. It will come from the difference you are making to other human beings. If I'm a, a regular business owner and I'm passionate about being a force for good, how can I or how can other business owners embrace that and then make it part of their everyday way of doing business? Well, the most important thing is to understand the impact that you have. And the only way you can understand the impact you have is to talk to people and listen. Um, and 
it doesn't happen in isolation. So what impact am I having on community? So I know that of the experiences we deliver to those small businesses, and, you know, like if I think about the hot air balloon supplier who I signed up more than 20 years ago in the Hunter Valley, and that first year he had one balloon uh, and he had about 700 passengers. Um, and now he's got 23 balloons and 26,000 passengers. So it's a very, very different business that we have together been able to create. And he was the one that said to me, and every single one of those people who come, um, they stay in accommodation, they go to the winery, they eat in the restaurants. So for every $100 they're spending with me, they're probably spending another $1,000 in our community. And then you realise the economic impact of the multiplier. You also think about, okay, it's not the 150 people, however many people we employ in BRG. It's the tens of thousands of jobs that we have created because of this industry. And then you go, wow, that has an amazing impact to our community that people could do what they love. Um, you know, Mr. Hot Air Balloon is a world champion. He might not be a world champion marketer, but he can focus on being a world champion balloonist, give incredible experiences, but he doesn't have to worry about where his customers are coming from. That is so true what you say about it being an ecosystem and being the, the community. Like you're not just saying, oh, we're just plonking one sort of experience in there. You are connected with that community. And I think that's something that I think what, what you do online, like with what you do on LinkedIn, you know, you're one of the leading LinkedIn influencers. It's about building community and kind of showing that you can do that sort of thing digitally as well and connect with people in, in different sort of ways and learn from them and, you know, kind of benefit them. What is one piece of advice you have for anyone who's using that platform to promote themselves or their business or even collaborate with other businesses? Look, the thing that's missing on all social platforms right now is trust. And I guess in being, um, and I, it must be eight years or nine years since LinkedIn reached out and had two of us in Australia out of a cohort of 150 around the world be uh, what they call LinkedIn influencers. And we were the only ones publishing content on that platform. Um, and so that early content was very fresh and new. And the reason why they did it, because, you know, there's, there's Al Gore, there's Richard Branson, there's it's incredible names. And Obama, like these are incredible names. So um, that had a cachet and an authority um, by this cohort. Now, the challenge that we have is anybody and everyone can now publish. They can do lives. They can do all of these things. And as such, there's so much content. And I wrote a post about this. I said, how do you know it's real? On what basis, what authority? And what happens is when there's so much content, you begin to fall back to those who have authority, which may well be the media outlets or the research institutes that you know and trust. And that's why the people who you know and trust have in some more, more cachet now and authority than they even did before. So, it, you know, for people who are wanting to use the platform, ask on what basis do I have the authority to give this opinion or give these claims and you better back it up or have some level of brand association of why it is valuable because 
in my opinion, there is just so much content. Like I used to blog. I was one of the first bloggers, which is why I got the gig at uh, LinkedIn. But I just don't think people read in the same way as they used to. I I think they love podcasts. I think they take information in different sorts of ways. And maybe at this point I should plug my own podcast, Handpicked. And one of the reasons I created the podcast was because I truly believe that that's now how people want to take their information rather than necessarily reading. And my podcast is the exact opposite of this in the sense of small businesses, business owners come on and ask me questions about how to grow and scale their enterprise and when they're challenged. And it's it's great because it's things like, how do I put up my prices? It's really practical. Um, but businesses ask me questions like that. One of the interesting things that you touched on just then was not just about the way content and the consumption of content is changing, but also the massive amount of content that people have to choose from so that they're only narrowing their focus to a smaller range of voices that are trustworthy. But what does that mean for diversity and inclusion and being exposed to opinions other than your own, you know, like how do we avoid being stuck in this bubble where all we hear are opinions that we agree with and people that think the same? I don't have an answer to that. And the reason is because algorithms are are serving you what they think you want, which is based on your last searches. So the only way is to actually read a magazine, read a book, and get something that is printed and not produced in a bespoke format for you. And social media, it does not do that job. And the content does not do that job. So because they are just trying to keep you happy so that you will consume more advertising. Mm. So, um, you know, we like getting the newspaper on a weekend. Mm. I do it every Saturday. (laughs) Yeah, I still do it. Saturday paper. (laughs) Yeah, it's only one day a week. I get that. But so, so unfortunately, we are so curated based on our advertising consumption. That is a really big question. And it is also forcing people to the extremes and polarizing people it's saying you're either black or you're white there's no in between when actually there's a vast variety in between but you're either for me or against me no I'm not I like some of the bits that you do there but I don't agree with some of these other things and that um, independent thought I'm I'm really challenged by what social media across the board is is doing to our ability to think. And they are trying to um, get an, an emotion from you, either anger or a feel-good. You know, they're trying to get a, a, a click of dopamine because, you know, we're getting addicted to it. We're so addicted. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's not go on about that. Move on because <laughs> this is not a good subject. What do you think is the number one challenge as businesses are coming out of the pandemic that they're facing? People, 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 and how they want to work. And where are we going to get enough people to drive the growth that the economy can deliver? And and also so that we can seek to under, be a part of a really global opportunity. I, I'm quite saddened by us not having enough 
I don't know if people in STEM and yesterday I read that maths um, as a subject for high school students is actually deteriorating and I was like, oh, my God. Mm. So don't get me started on that one. So people is the biggest issue. Um, there's plenty of capital available, but we just don't have enough uh, people, clever people. Mm. It seems as though we're not upskilling those that we have either. Yeah, I, I, that's a that's a kind of a micro question in a macro problem mm. because there's some businesses who invest greatly in growing their people, and there's others who don't, and they go and gre- get growth elsewhere. So that's a that's a micro question in a macro mm. world. Now, final question: Small business owners wear lots of hats, but it seems like you wear a lot of hats too. You know, you're a sought after speaker. You've got your podcast. You you blog for LinkedIn, you invest in startups, you mentor people, you're a philanthropist, you've got Big Red Group going. Oh, so I mean, many things. <laughs> so many. How do you manage to thrive and not get burnt out? How do you recharge? Oh, look, I'm very good about keeping myself fit. If you're not healthy, then you can't serve people. You can't be a leader. Uh, and so, yeah, health is very, really, really important. And so I invest in not just, say, yang, I also invest in ying. I used to uh, do all things like, you know, running and pumping and all of these more <laughs> aggressive kind of things. And now I do far more yoga, meditation, Pilates, strength work, uh, walking so that I'm getting a balance to my busy life by having some yin in it, not just yang. Uh, And I think that that's important. The other thing is nutrition, knowing what you're eating and and getting good value from that. Um, Nutrition is really important and sleep. I sleep as much as I possibly can. Uh, you know, Arianne Huffington's go, been going on about that and it's one thing to say we want to sleep, but if we're so highly wired and there's no yin in our life, it's very hard for our body to relax enough to get really good quality deep sleep. How many, so hours, sleep, a, how many hours a day exercise. How many hours a day for you, Naomi? Well, I know exactly because I've got an aura ring that tells me I'm doing <laughs> seven hours and 20 minutes of good quality sleep. Oh, <laughs> and it's all about the quality, I, isn't it? Yeah, it is all about the quality uh, of, of, of the sleep, yeah. It's about the, you know, trying to get 25% of deep sleep and 25% of REM sleep. Mm. And I, I'm really great at REM sleep, deep sleep. I, it's very intimate. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, now people know. <laughs> You're like, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah, but I, 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 I look at those three things because unless I'm fit and healthy, um, then I'm no use to anyone. Look, that's such fantastic piece of advice. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, follow Naomi Simpson on LinkedIn. Check out her podcast, Handpicked with Naomi Simpson, where she takes questions from business owners and gives you the answers you can only find out from her. I really appreciate being on the show and I hope this provides great value to all your listeners. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us, Naomi. And thank you for listening 